through this teaching this morning, you will be much more familiar with these details. And I believe a lot of this will make sense if it didn't so far. But really, in chapter 4, in those first three verses that we read, the author begins this section with two conclusions that are each paired with two commissions, two applications for us. You know, let me just give you an example of what this would sound like. A, a, a conclusion that's followed by a commission. You know, in Southern California, this is the conclusion I've made. All we get is rain and clouds. My commission, therefore, is that you all save money and move to Texas. How do you guys feel about that? Many have already done it. Don't be like them. Don't turn away from the rest that's available here in California. We need you here, right? We need more Christians to move to California. Don't go. But that, that's just an example, right? Tongue-in-cheek of a conclusion followed by a commission. The author starts in chapter 4 doing just that, starting with these conclusions about Jesus that lead to an application for us. The first is here, verse 14. Since we have a high priest who ascended into heaven in Jesus, that's the conclusion, right? That's the statement of truth. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. That is our commission. That is the application. Because Jesus is this, and because he's accomplished this, let us hold firmly to our faith in him. There's a second conclusion and commission in verses 15 and 16. Since we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but one who was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. I mean, that's the conclusion about Jesus. It's not that he's unable to empathize with us. He is able to empathize with us. He's gone through our human experience. He's been tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin. That's the conclusion. The commission then for us is let us draw near God's throne of grace with confidence and receive the mercy and grace we require in our time of need. That's how we ought to respond to the reality of who Jesus is. Now, I want to take a minute to affirm the underlying reality the writer is responding to through these conclusions and commissions, and really what he's been saying since chapter 1. And I'm going to put it on the screen. Like This is the underlying reality that he's been addressing, that he's been speaking to, as he's been bringing up these cautionary tales of ancient Israel and the way that they responded to the promises of God. Here it is. We as human beings, number one, are prone to disobedience and unbelief. He's just saying, he's addressing that. He's responding to that. In these couple verses, and he's been doing that all through Hebrews so far, he'll continue to do so. Number one, he's just, he's just declaring, look, we as human beings, in our weaknesses, we are prone to disobedience and unbelief. And as a result, number two, we need help. There isn't a single soul in this room that doesn't struggle with disobedience and unbelief and that doesn't require God's help. Now there can be an error. There can be an error about religious settings, right? There can be an attitude in Christian culture that when you become a part of that culture, well, now you're a part of the group that has it all together all the time, right? And you may feel that pressure to present yourself as someone, even to those closest around you, that you, like them, is someone that has it all together all the time. But the confession, the true confession that we hold is that Jesus alone is the only one who has it all together all the time. Jesus was tempted and yet did not sin. We are tempted and we have and we do 
sin. It's like what John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, if you say, I don't have any problems, I don't need the help that God is offering me, if you get into a conflict with someone else, and you say, oh, it's completely on them, there's nothing I have to own in this conflict, you deceive yourself, you're lying to yourself, and the truth could not possibly be in you. And I know that's hard to hear, but honestly, guys, that's the freedom. That's the freedom of Christian confession. That's the freedom of Christian community, that we all agree with this. That when you entered into Christian community and into your confession with Christ, that you didn't enter into the land of perfect marriages. Okay, you didn't enter into the land of perfect parenting. You didn't enter into the land of perfect believing and behaving before God of utter moral purity. Anything from that. You need help. And you're confessing that. Guys, this last week, I'll tell you, I got into an argument with my wife. I'm not even going to call it a tiff. I'm going to call it an argument. And it was an argument that didn't need to happen, just like most arguments. The irony of it was, the first thing I did when I sat down away from the argument, we're still in the midst of the conflict, I opened up my computer, and my life insurance policy has just been confirmed. <laughs> so if I end up on Dateline in one of those stories, you know, all right? If I go missing, you're aware, right, of what's happening. We're all good now, okay? But I'm just saying, like, all that, I'm not going to be a faker on a stage, I want you guys to know you need help. All of you need help. I need help. All of us need help. I should be able to say to this room, hey, raise your hand if you believe in Jesus and you're a Christian. And all the people you know that do, raise your hand. And say, put your hand down. Now raise your hand if you need help. And it should be all the same hands raised as the first group of people yet again. Because if we're in Christ, we're saying we need His grace and His mercy. Now this passage tells us that Jesus is the source of the help that we require. He gives it to us as our high priest in heaven. And I'm going to circle back to the conclusions and commissions from chapter 4 when we close. Because really, all that goes on in chapter 5 is just kind of like supporting those conclusions and those commissions so we can really understand just how much help he has to offer us. But again, as we move forward and as we look at chapter 5, chapter 5 is very similar in its structure to the rest of Hebrews so far. It's all about the superiority of Jesus in his functioning as our high priest. You know, Jesus has been compared to the prophets and, and that he's greater. He's been compared to the angels and that he's greater. He's compared to Moses and the law and he's greater and the old forms of Old Testament rest and he's greater. And now he's going to be compared to the earthly historical institution of the priesthood from Israel's history to see that he is superior as a high priest. And it's okay if you don't know anything about ancient Israel and the role of priest because it's my job to educate this morning so that we can better understand how Jesus relates to us in his role as high priest today. So to give you some background... When Moses received the covenant with God on Mount Sinai, he received the commandments, right, that most of us are familiar with, Ten Commandments and on, that gave the you know, stipulations about how God's people were to behave. And there were also regulations around how the people ought to worship and honor God with their lives. And there was also some provisions. If the people messed up, if they were disobedient, how did they make amends? All that was in what Moses received. And along with that came the role of the priests, and the distinguished role 
of the high priest. Verse 1 of chapter 5 here in the book of Hebrews reminds us, us that the role and the job of the high priest was to offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. And there was a menagerie of offerings that were given per the book of Leviticus. All this is contained there in the early chapters. You had the gifts that they would offer, you know, the, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering. You had the, the offerings for sin, the sacrifice for sin, such as the aptly named sin offering and the guilt offering and the very importantly, you know, offering that would take place on the Day of Atonement where once a year the high priest would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the whole nation for their forgiveness. Basically, if you read through the first couple of chapters of Leviticus, you will realize these guys smelt like barbecue every single day of their jobs. Like there's a lot of stuff that was constantly burning in ancient Israel for these gifts and for these sacrifices. And if you want to know more, you can go to the message archive. You can look up our series in the book of Leviticus. I taught through this. It's the low price of $99.99. You can subscribe. I'm just kidding. It's all free. I promise you it's all free. But even if you don't go back, we're going to get back to that later on in the book of Hebrews. There's going to be more on that later. But verse 1 explains that the high priest who gave these sacrifices as the human representative before God, he had to be from among the people, selected from among the people to represent the people. It's like, you know, we've got American ambassadors in our political system. You don't pick a Canadian, A, eh, to be an American ambassador, right, for our country. That wouldn't make any sense. They're not American. They're not part of us. They don't represent us. They have to be from America if they're going to fulfill that role. So also, you don't have like some heavenly being or creature representing God's people to him and him back to the people. It, they had to be selected from among human beings. Now, verse 2 reminds us, that as a human being like us, these earthly high priests were able to deal kindly with their fellow man because they too were subject to the same weaknesses as everybody else. They were just another person. It's like I should be able to deal kindly with my wife when she leaves the car doors unlocked and valuable things are stolen from our vehicles in Huntington Beach overnight. And the reason that I should be able to deal gently with her in that error is because I, too, have left the car doors unlocked and had many valuable things stolen from my own possession. What I'm saying is I am subject to the same weaknesses. I fall prey to the same things. So also the author is saying here in verse 3, look, Aaron, the first high priest and brother of Moses, and every high priest after him, when someone says, I did something wrong, I need you to perform this sacrifice on my behalf before God, they should say, hey, man, I get it. I totally understand. I'm just like you. I need the same thing. As verse 3 reminds us, the high priest and everybody else in the priesthood needed to cover themselves. On the Day of Atonement, when they have that special role of going into the most holy place, and offering this sacrifice for the forgiveness of the entire nation before they even enter in. They've got to do a sacrifice for themselves to cleanse themselves of sin because sin can't enter into the presence of a holy God. You know, they've got to approach in there going, you know, I hope that sacrifice for my sin worked because if I go in here to perform this sacrifice, I'm going to drop dead on the spot. And as an aside... Considering verse 3, considering what's being spoken of this earthly priesthood, I just want to remind you that it doesn't matter who you look to in this world. It doesn't matter what position of authority that they hold and how 
you know, wise and intelligent they seem, how moral they seem, whether it's a leader in the church, whether it's a famous author that you really look to, whether it's an artist, whether it's a therapist, it doesn't matter who you look to in this world, they all need their sin atoned for just like you. The greatest people in the world that everybody looks to, they need their sin atoned for the same as you. They are subject to the same weaknesses that you are subject to. I need my sins forgiven just the same as anyone else, just like those earthly high priests of old. Now the writer, having laid out the human and historical role of the high priest and having acknowledged their inherent weaknesses, he begins to contrast them with the heavenly priest and king, Jesus Christ, starting in verse 4. He begins by showing the humility of Jesus and being selected for the role. You know, just as the earthly high priest would not have assumed the role themselves, but they were appointed by God through the lineage of Aaron. So in verse 5, it tells us Jesus did not assume a role or a position of glory on his own terms, but was chosen by God for his place as our heavenly, eternal high priest. This is supported by those quotations from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. The latter of which is a prophecy of King David. He was looking for a time yet to be in the future when God promised to bring this conquering king. But he wasn't just going to be a king. He was going to be more than just an earthly king. He was also going to be a priestly king in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't want to give away too much of what we'll return to later in the book of Hebrews, but Melchizedek is an Old Testament figure shrouded in mystery. And that's what makes him so interesting. The fact that we're only given a little bit about him in the book of Genesis means he gets an inordinate amount of attention by people because we just want to know, because we're just curious. So a lot of energy goes there, and I'm not going to use all that energy up yet because we're going to return back to him at length later on in the book of Hebrews. But essentially, Melchizedek was this priestly king who predated Moses and the line of the high priests in Aaron, who was affirmed by Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. As I said, more on that later. The point is, here in Hebrews chapter 5, Jesus fulfills a heavenly depiction of one who is not just priest, but also king, and one whose sense of calling and purpose predates even the system of Moses and the law and the other earthly priests that the readers of this letter, the original readers, that they were so obsessed with. You know, that's what they were curious about returning back to. And he's going, look, Jesus is a part of something greater that predates all the things that you are so concerned about. This is, this is a role that is distinguished. This is in the order of Melchizedek. It's not just a priest. He's a priest and king. It's like nothing you've ever experienced before. And verse 7 tells us, Jesus being chosen for that role as heavenly high priest and king was confirmed through the obedience that he displayed in his life and ministry, which was superior to that of anyone who came before him or anyone since. It says that during his days in the flesh, in his human experience, Jesus was constantly offering up prayers and petitions and tears, right? Offering all that up in submission to God's will, asking for God to save him from death. And that's not him asking not to go to the cross, and not to be that once and for all sacrifices that covers humanity's sin. 
It was him pleading with God, knowing this premonition that he's going to give up his life. He's pleading with God to give him resurrection from the realm of the dead. Though he was God's son, verse 8 tells us he learned obedience through what he suffered. And it's not as though Jesus was disobedient and then through his suffering he learned how to follow God. You know, like a child is disobedient and gets consequences and learns the proper course of action. No, through his suffering, he learned what it is to be human and obedient to God. He learned what it is to face suffering and pain and rejection and go through all the things that we experience in our human weakness. And yet he remained obedient and sinless in the midst of it. Having gone through that experience, he was made perfect or complete for his role as the source of our eternal salvation. To be our high priest, our representative, our wonderful counselor and pastor in heaven. So I want to just drive this home. What's being driven home at the end of chapter 4 here and the first few verses of chapter 5. I want to drive this home because this is one of the underlying things that the writer of Hebrews is saying to us. What you feel and what you're going through in the variety of the human experience that's represented here across this room, what you feel and what you're going through, Jesus understands. God himself understands. Now, I think that most of us understand that God knows us. God can see everything, right? He knows who we are. But just knowing that God knows us doesn't bring us close. And a lot of times, many of us will feel a distance from God because we go, oh, he's just up on a cloud. He's just disconnected from us. He knows us. Ooh, he knows us. He can see how bad we are and how perfect he is, right? And there's a reverent fear that's affirmed in the scriptures. But it's not just that he knows us. He understands us. And that's the difference that closes that gap, that feeling that, God is far from us. You know, you guys know this in your own experience in relationships with other people. There's a lot of people that may know you, but when you don't feel understood, do you feel disconnected? Do you feel alone? God says, I understand you. You ever see like when military vets get together? You know, a lot of people may know these individuals, but when they get together with their peers who've had a shared experience that not others have had, they feel understood. They feel at home in a way that many of them will express they don't feel when they're around other people. The writer of Hebrews is conveying the same thing to us. What you feel, what you're going through, God understands. He knows what it is to be misunderstood. He knows what it is to be mistreated by others, to be taken advantage of. He knows what it is to be exhausted and have nothing left in the tank and feel like you have nothing left to give. He knows what it is to face disappointment, to have his expectations crushed. He knows what it is to experience despair, to undergo the pain of loss and grief, to be abandoned, isolated, marginalized, surrounded by supporters, right? And yet still feeling entirely alone. He knows what it is to suffer, to be poor, to sacrifice, to have something that you deserve and to give it up, to be stricken, to feel rejected in his prayers, to feel forsaken even by God himself. He knows what it is to be tempted like us, 
to have the false promise of sin and comfort be dangled in front of him, to feel the pressure of the worldly system and values around him, to want and yet not be satisfied, to not have. And yet in all that human experience, he did not sin. He remained in pursuit of the will of God. And that is why we hold firm to and seek our help from him alone. As we conclude our time this morning, I want to end with a few conclusions that really take us back to the end of chapter 4. It's a lot of the same conclusions and commissions that we began with this morning, but they're enlivened by what we read in chapter 5. All the helps us understand what those conclusions and those commissions are all about. And the first is this. Jesus is our sole means of access to God, so hold fast to Him. Jesus is our sole means of access to God, so hold fast to Him. This was spoken in chapter 4, verse 14. Knowing what we know of Jesus now, and knowing even more going into chapter 5, knowing that He has ascended and entered into heaven... Since we have this great high priest, meaning he has done and become what no one else could ever do or ever become. And because he now retains exclusive access and the means by which we approach God's presence through his sacrifice for our sins, hold firm, hold firm to him in faith. There is no other way. There is no other means. There is no other process. There's no other spirituality or religion that can gain access to God's presence. For them, the message was, hey guys, don't go backward. Don't go back to the sacrificial system. Don't go back to these earthly priests. They're no different than you. They need the same thing that you need. Quit looking to them for help because you've got a greater help that has arrived. For us, you know, and I know it sounds silly, but it's true for so many people, don't go turn into crystals. You know, there's a lot of people that are turning to crystals. You know, these materials that God created, oh, that's, I'm going to derive some force from that that's going to help me attain to something transcendent, something greater, right? Don't go to that self-realization, self-help positivity stuff. That's not going to get you there. That's not going to grant you access to God. Don't go to somebody else, a Muhammad, a Joseph Smith, Buddha, Joe Rogan, I don't care how many followers he has on his podcast. Like, they don't have the same access that Jesus has. None of them sat down at the right hand of the Father. So if I get lost in the woods and I find the only path that's going to lead me back home, I'm going to stick to that path. If I get sick, terminally sick, and I get medicine, that's the only medicine that can actually heal me, I'm not going to fail to take that medicine. I'm going to take that medicine every day. So we also shouldn't fail to take in Jesus, to stick with Jesus. Hold firmly to Him. A second conclusion here from Hebrews 4 and 5. Jesus is able to empathize with our weaknesses, so approach Him boldly. You know, you would think human beings weak, human beings sin, human beings falling short, approach boldly? Those two things don't go together. It, it should be human beings in sin, human beings in weakness, approach God with fear, right? But the difference maker is Jesus can empathize with our weakness. 
so approach boldly. This isn't how human beings naturally respond to God and to others. When you're in sin, when you're in a place of weakness, do you go and share that with everybody? Do you go straight to God? A lot of times we'll do what we see in Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned. What did they do? They hid. When the high priest is going into that most holy place, offering the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, is he approaching boldly? He's going, oh my gosh, I really hope that sacrifice covered over my sin. I hope I really laid it all out before God. And there was that reverent fear, right? Even for Peter, one of the chief disciples of Jesus, when he disavowed association with Jesus at Jesus' most important, challenging earthly moment at his trial, what did Peter go do? He went into the outside courtyard and he tried to blend in. We don't have to do that any longer because of the forgiveness granted through Jesus' sacrifice, because he has cleansed us. Think back to our baptism celebration a month ago as you see people coming out of the water, physically cleansed, physically washed in the water. That's a representation of spiritually what God has done to cleanse the soul of all impurity, as he continually forgives and cleanses us with the grace and mercy we need, we're able to approach the throne of God with confidence, boldly. We don't go in there, you know, tiptoeing. We don't go in there with our head down, waiting for the condemnation and punishment. We go in there with our head up, saying, I need help. God says, the door is open. I know what you need. I know you all need help. I know you all need mercy and grace, and I'm eager to give it. That's my third point. Jesus is ready to provide us mercy and grace in our time of need. So seek his help. So seek his help. We don't just have a high priest who's granted us access to God. We have a high priest who, through his empathy for our weakness, and through his victory in his human life, he's able to teach us the way. He's able to strengthen us. He's able to encourage us in the midst of our hardships and sufferings and trials that we will inevitably face. He wasn't like the high priest of old who needed to cover their own sins as they covered the sins of the people who could only say, I get what it's like to fail. You know, that's all the advice they had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a failure just like you guys. It's like you ever called into a customer service line and you got like a trainee who doesn't know how to work their own systems? You know, have you ever been in that situation? You're like, I have called in before and I know the processes and you are not clear on the processes right now. You're like, you can't help me any more than I can help myself right now. That was the earthly high priest. They're in our same condition. But Jesus knows our experiences and yet was victorious and sinless. He doesn't shame us for our weakness. He invites us to come to him and learn from him how to hold fast in faith how to follow God through our trials, because he did it already. He knows how. So I want to invite us this morning to do this very thing, to apply this morning, because, guys, it says that God wants to extend his grace and mercy in our time of need. We're in our time of need. When we're in our heavenly rest, when we're in heaven, no longer is there going to be need. There's going to be fulfillment. As long as we're in this experience, this human experience, we're in the time of need. And there isn't a single soul in this room that doesn't need help. Everyone needs help in overcoming their sin. 
Everyone needs help in being sustained to fulfill the will of God. Everyone needs help in achieving the ideals that Jesus has laid before us. Everyone needs help pushing forward in belief amidst all the suffering and difficulties that are going to come at us, right? We all need help. We've been given an invitation, a bold, confident invitation to approach God, ask for it, believing we're going to receive it. We can receive it. So would you take a posture prayer with me this morning? That's what Jesus did. If you want to know how to get your help, if you want to know how to receive that strengthening of your faith, if you want to feel the empathy of Jesus to, to comfort you as your pastor, as your, as your counselor, as it says in the Bible, there's no other means except through prayer. Through listening to His Word, through listening to His voice, by listening to His Spirit. It says that Jesus is a model for us. How did He live His life? Day in, day out, fervent prayers and petitions. He needed to rely on His Father in Heaven. He had tears. He felt the weakness. He felt the human limitations that we feel stuck as we are in this experience, stuck as we are with our flesh, with these bodies. He relied on his Father in heaven. He says, you can do the same. I'll make a way for you to do the same. You're not sinless, but I can make you forgiven. I can cleanse you so that you can approach your Father in heaven with confidence. Lord, I pray for that right now in this time and space that we have set apart. We're not going to turn to have somebody else pray for us right now. We're going to turn to you, Jesus. We're going to turn to you, our Father in heaven. Because you told us we can go right to you, directly to you. We're not going to tiptoe in. We're not going to approach you expecting condemnation through our trust in what you, Jesus, have accomplished. Through your sacrifice, we are forgiven. We're cleansed. I pray every single one of my brothers and sisters in this room who's fallen short in sin, Maybe they're caught in sin, even right now in their life, a pattern, Lord, that they would turn to you and they would feel the cleansing of their soul. It makes them lift their head and instead of hiding from you, instead of trying to just blend in with everyone else, they're going to come before you, Lord, laying it out there, what you already see, what you already know. Lord, we approach you with confidence in our time of need. This is our time of need, Lord. Some of us, we're, we're struggling against sin. Some of us were in that human experience of, oh man, it's hard for us to express humility and admit that we're wrong in a relationship. We're clinging too tightly to the materials and the money that's around our life. We need you to help us loosen our grip. Or we're just feeling so lonely and isolated because we're not understood, because we don't have somebody near to us. Lord, there's a whole variety of needs that exist for all my brothers and sisters gathered here this morning, and you know all of them, and you understand it all. You get what we feel. You felt it yourself. You empathize with our weakness and limitations because you faced them, and yet you did not sin. Provide for us a way forward. Provide for us a strength we don't have. Jesus, let us learn how to live from you because you did it all to honor your Father in heaven. That's the life we want to live. And I just want to give you this space right now. Everybody in this room, would you just 
bring before the Lord. What is your time of need? What is your need right now? It's the throne of grace. He's able to give mercy and grace, help, aid in your time of need. Express it to the Lord, just as Jesus would in his prayers and petitions. Receive the consolation that he gives you. He's felt it. He understands. Lord, would you give my brothers and sisters a way forward in strength, in obedience, in faith. Just commit this time to him for a few moments this morning before we join in worship together.